Good morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we come to you this morning as we come to your word, acknowledging that we are needy people. We're not able to understand your word by ourselves. We need your Holy Spirit to illumine the text for us. So we ask that he would do that. We pray this prayer with great confidence because... We know that the work of your Son has purchased the work of the Holy Spirit for us, that the Spirit lives inside of us, and that the Spirit has written this word for us. And so we, we pray that the Spirit would do this, that you would help us to understand these things, help us to love these things, and understand our lives in light of these things, and that we would leave this morning with great encouragement, with a greater love for the Lord Jesus, and a desire to walk in greater faithfulness to you as we approach the day of the return of our Lord Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This morning, we're closing out this chapter, focusing on verses 13 through 17. For the sake of context, I'd like to read the whole chapter. So as you're finding your place there, let us stand together, and I will read the whole chapter. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, Son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. 
To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning by pointing out to you some of the safety features of, of our auditorium and actually of our whole building. You'll notice over here that we have an exit sign in the, in the event of an emergency, a fire. The lights on either side of that exit sign, they'll light up, illuminating the way of exit, and we're reasonably sure that all of those work because our very own Mark Trammell personally has inspected those, made sure that they work. We also have Fire extinguishers, there's one here, there's one at the back of the room over there. We have them throughout the building. And those are serviced regularly. We're reasonably sure that those work as well. Look at the ceiling, you'll find throughout the room little round discs. And that's a sprinkler system. So in the event of a fire, those should pop down and sprinkle water throughout the room. We're also reasonably sure that those work. I'm sure that you feel much safer now than you did when you walked in this morning. Is that true? Probably not, because when you walked in this morning, you weren't thinking about fire. You weren't worried about fire at all. You may be now, but you weren't thinking about it at all. You probably didn't get up this morning thinking, I wonder if there will be a fire at church this morning, and I'm a little worried about going. No, you weren't at all. But, but, but what if, on a given Sunday, we made an announcement? Look, don't ask us how we know. But next Sunday, there will be a fire. Halfway through the second service, there's going to be a fire. The, 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 the auditorium is going to be fully involved. But don't worry. The exit signs probably work. And the fire extinguishers probably work. And the sprinkler system probably works. See you next Sunday. I wonder what attendance would be like on that Sunday. Probably not very good. I think, I think the, the parking lot would be full. And we would all be out there in our cars. But I can think of probably four people that would be in the building. I think Jacob Marshall and Doug Nagel would be in the building because they're firefighters and, you know, out of a sense of duty, they would be in the, in the building. I think for convictional reasons, Pastor Rick would be in the building because his mindset is, I don't know what to tell you. We worship on Sundays. And I think probably Mark Trammell would be in the building because he's Mark Trammell and he would want to make sure these signs are working. The rest of us would be out in our cars watching the show because these, these human safeguards would not be enough to make us feel safe. In, in, in the, the face of certain danger, we don't want merely human safeguards. We're looking for something Better than that, maybe a word from the Lord, maybe a divine safeguard would, would make us feel safe. We might show up if we had a word from the Lord saying, look, I promise you, you're going to survive that Sunday morning. So come on Sunday morning, I promise you, you're going to make it. We might come then. If you were here for the first two messages of 2 Thessalonians 2, you know that we, we've received from Paul some dire news. 
this, this church age in which we live is an age of deception. Spirit of lawlessness is already at work. We've seen throughout history, some of us have watched this happen, professing believers falling prey to deception and, and leaving the faith. And we know that in the future, just before the Lord Jesus comes, many professing believers are going to fall away from the faith as, as the man of lawlessness is revealed and, and he comes and brings a great, a great tribulation and many will fall away. Many of you have, have put two and two together and deduced something that I have not said explicitly until right now. The church will be here during that great tribulation. And again, you, you may disagree with that, and if, if you disagree with that, that's totally fine because these, these matters of, of eschatology, the, the, the smaller details of eschatology, they're, they're not essential do- doctrines. What we must agree on as it pertains to eschatology is that Jesus is coming back. Some of the, the smaller details we don't have to agree on. And if you, if you believe that we won't be here during the tribulation, that, that's fine. And I wish that you were right. I really do. I don't think that you're right. I think that 2 Thessalonians teaches that we will, that we will be here. And, and I, I mentioned in the first message, I believe, in 2 Thessalonians, that it was about 15 years ago that this passage is what, is what initially led me to, to conclude that we will be here during the Great Tribulation. So Shelby and I were, were on, in the car somewhere, and, and I had been thinking about these things, and I, and I said to her, I need to tell you something. And that always makes her very nervous. So she said, okay. And I said, I think we're going to be here during the tribulation. And she said, la, 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 I don't want to hear this. I can't hear this. I think a lot of people are that way, right? Because, no, we don't want to endure that kind of danger. We don't want to be here. And, and we, we, we yearn for some kind of divine safeguard. If, if we actually do accept what, what, this, what this text appears to be saying, which is we will have to endure those days, we want some kind of divine safeguard, not merely human safeguards. We want some assurance from God, from God that we will not fall to the deception of that day, that we will stand... Stand firm when the man of lawlessness is revealed by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception. We want to know for sure that God is going to make sure that we see Jesus when He returns. And praise the Lord, Paul gives us those divine safeguards in the final verses of chapter 2. Verses 13 through 17, he gives us three, three divine safeguards. And the first of those is God's election and our security in it. God's election and our security in it. We find that in verses 13 and 14. I'll read those verses again. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's crucial for us to pay attention to the context whenever we're studying God's Word, lest we miss the intention of the Holy Spirit in a given passage. See, Paul is not giving random thoughts about thanksgiving or election here, but rather he's providing assurance to the Thessalonians 
that they need not be overly anxious about their ability to withstand this age of deception. This passage bears bears similarity to Hebrews chapter 6. If you're familiar with Hebrews, you know what I'm talking about. In Hebrews 6, the author begins that chapter with a very strong and sobering warning about the terrible and eternal danger of falling away from the faith. But then he writes in verse 9 of that chapter, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Given the context, we can understand that Paul is doing something very similar here in 2 Thessalonians 2. He's saying at the beginning of the chapter, look, many are going to fall away in this age of deception. Many who professed faith in Christ, they're going to be judged for their refusal to actually follow Christ. But I'm confident that that is not true of you believers who are in Thessalonica. Now we might wonder if in Hebrews 6 and if in 2 Thessalonians 2, the warnings given there aren't really going to end up being true of true believers, then why are the warnings given at all? The answer to that question is that these warnings that we find in 2 Thessalonians 2 and throughout the book of Hebrews, these are part of the means that our God uses to sovereignly cause us to persevere in the faith. They are part of the means that He uses to cause us to persevere in the faith. And so Paul gives the warning. Then he says... But we thank God, thank God about you that He chose you, you whom He loves, He chose you to be the first fruits. And by first fruits, He means, look, there's going to be many like you, many who will be harvested on the last day. God chose you for salvation. And I want you to notice something. Not only is, is Paul not ashamed of this language of election, which, which can tend to be quite problematic for a lot of people. God chose you to be saved. Paul is, Paul is not afraid to present this openly, but beyond that, he intends for this to be a great comfort to us. And the implication is that if God chose you, this God who does not change His mind, Numbers 23.19, God does not change His mind. If He chose you, He's not going to unchoose you and then let you go. The election of God should be a great comfort to us. And according to verse 13, God's election is made effective through two means. And the first of those is the sanctification of the Spirit. When we hear the word sanctification, we tend to think of that process through which the Holy Spirit progressively makes us like the Lord Jesus. But that's not the way that Paul is using that word here. Rather, he's referring to the work of the Spirit whereby we are set apart for God. We're set apart for God. So the Holy Spirit, He takes the saving work of Christ, God's, Christ's atoning work, and He applies it to those who the Father has chosen. So He regenerates dead sinners and sets them apart unto life in Christ. And what this means is, and the, the reason that we should find this very comforting, is that once you have been made alive in Christ by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, there is no going back. Once you've been made alive, you are alive forevermore. God's election marks out His own 
through the sanctification of the Spirit. There's a second means by which God's election is made effective, and and it's through belief in the truth. He writes, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, those two things are, are in a particular order, and that order is important. Sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Why is that? Why does he order it that way? We don't believe unto being set apart, but we are set apart unto belief. Those of you who are well familiar with Acts, you may have Acts 13.48 coming up into your mind right now. What does Acts 13.48 say? Does it say, as many as believed were appointed to eternal life? No. It says, as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Our being set apart precedes our belief. Our being set apart, the Holy Spirit bringing us to spiritual life, that is why we believe. So the Holy Spirit, He quickens us, and then we immediately believe the truth. So all All of it is by God's grace and it takes place in the life of everyone that God chooses, that God elects. In verse 14, he elaborates on how we're set apart by the Spirit. Verse 14, he says, To this, meaning to salvation, He called you through our gospel. So The Spirit called us to salvation through the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is that that good news that Although we were conceived dead in our trespasses and sins, although we were born estranged from God, although we gave ourselves over to rebelling against Him with every thought and every deed, although we brought upon ourselves the eternal punishment due for those sins, although all of that is true, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, He gave His only Son, Jesus Christ, to do two things for us to live perfectly in obedience to God's law on our behalf and to die in our place as the penalty for our sins. And then three days later, God raised Him from the dead so that everyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus will be forgiven of their sin, adopted by God, and will spend eternity with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in paradise. That is the good news. That's the gospel. That's the message that the Holy Spirit uses to bring dead people to life in Christ. Those are words that the Holy Spirit uses to to, to cause life to come into the dead sinner. Do you remember the story of John chapter 11 where Jesus calls Lazarus back to life using words? Remember the words that that He says. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Listen, the gospel is is the Lazarus come forth that the Holy Spirit uses to call dead sinners to life. Those whom the Father chooses and for whom the Son atones, the Spirit infallibly calls to life through words, the gospel message. And what is the end result of that person or those persons being called to life in Christ? He tells us, In verse 14, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he painted that picture of the glory of Christ at the end of chapter 1. What he's talking about is when Jesus comes back, we're, we're brought together to him and we enjoy eternity with him. So he's talking about life forevermore with Jesus so that you may obtain that. Now, the original language here is a little awkward to render in English, and so most translations, like the ESV, they, they throw a verb in here to make it more understandable and not quite so awkward. I'm going to give you the awkward literal version because, because when we throw these verbs in here, it makes it sound like the jury's still out on whether or not we're going to get here. Because, you know, see the, the ESV here says, so that you may obtain the glory. We, 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 we may misunderstand that to mean we might obtain the glory. So I'm, listen to the, the literal version of this. To which He called you through our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's not that we may obtain the glory of Christ. It's not that we might be with Him eternally. But, but no, the Father chooses us. The Son atones us. The Spirit calls and regenerates us so that we do obtain the glory of Christ. For anything else to eventuate from the work of the Trinity would be for the Trinity to fail. Can the Trinity fail? God never fails. So if God chose you, you will be saved. You will persevere in the faith. You will obtain the glory of Christ. So can you see why? Can you see why Paul would be talking about after the warning that he's just given about this age of deception? Can you see why this would be a comfort? Why this would be given to us as a safeguard? You are secure. In the Lord, you belong to Him. He is not going to let you go. God's election means that you will be with Him in the end. God's election and our security in it, that is is a great safeguard against deception in this final age. And it should be a, a great means of comfort to us. There's a second safeguard against deception. He gives us in verse 15, God's truth and our holding fast to it. God's truth and our holding fast to it. So look with me again at verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. I'm I'm looking to see if there's anybody shivering here because we we Protestants, we do not like that word traditions, do we? No, sir. We do not like that word at all. We hear the word tradition and we start to fear some kind of Catholic takeover of our minds and hearts. And yet, we find the word traditions right here held high in our infallible Bible. So what, what are we to do? Well, we, we should be careful not to load this biblical word with Catholic connotations. And we should be careful not to load this instance of this word with the Jewish connotations that it has when Jesus derides it in the Gospels. And we should be careful not to load this usage of it even with the connotations that it has when Paul uses it in Colossians 2.8. But rather, we should ask, first of all, what does the word itself mean? And then... What does the context, how does the context inform this usage of it? So, so first of all, what does the word itself mean? Well, the word tradition, uh, 
just refers to the content of instruction that has been handed down. The content of instruction that has been handed down. The question is, is the content of that instruction biblical? So a, a, a tradition, a teaching that's been handed down, is wonderful if it has been derived from the Bible. And the context will tell us whether or not that's the case. So Catholic tradition is set over against biblical teaching precisely because it is not derived from Scripture. That's why the distinction is made in the Catholic Church between tradition and Scripture. Tradition in the Catholic Church is a dogma that the Catholic Church holds to even though it is not found in Scripture and at times contradicts Scripture. And that's why we rightly regard it with great suspicion. Similarly, the Jewish traditions that Jesus derided in places like Matthew 15 and Mark 7, they were not found in Scripture and they at times contradicted Scripture, were held above Scripture. Similarly, when Paul uses the word in Colossians 2.8, he refers to it as human tradition and explicitly says this is opposed to Christ. It's therefore inherently contradictory to the Bible. So we're, we're, we're right to regard with suspicion any tradition, that is any teaching, that is not derived from Scripture. So the, the tradition, the content of teaching that's handed down, we should regard as dangerous if it is not consistent with the Scriptures. But the, the, the context that we have here indicates that what Paul is holding out must be consistent with Scripture. And I would, I would, I would contend that, that what Paul is actually saying here is, look, the tradition that I'm wanting you to hold to is the Gospel itself. Now, why would I say that? Because he's just indicated in the previous sentence that God's election is effected in our lives through the preaching of what he calls our gospel. Our gospel meaning the gospel that we taught you. That's what he's just said. Verse 14. Then, verse 15, he writes, Therefore, stand firm and hold fast to... He uses the word traditions, and we understand now that that means the content of teaching that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And the word therefore is very important because it tells us that this verse is logically related to the previous sentence. And so if, if Paul was going to call us to hold fast to something other than the teaching of the gospel, we would expect some word other than therefore. We might expect the word conversely or additionally, something other than therefore. We, we might expect him to write something like, Hey, you were called to salvation through the preaching of our gospel. Conversely, we want you to hold fast to something else that we taught you. But no, that's not what he says. He uses the word therefore. And so then the idea is, you were called to a secure salvation through our gospel. Therefore, hold fast to that teaching that you received from us, namely the things of the gospel. That's why he wants them to hold to it. What does Paul want them to do with that teaching? That is, what does Paul want them to do with the content of the gospel? Two things. He says, first of all, stand on it. Stand firm on that truth of the gospel. Don't waver. Don't move from it. 
And why shouldn't they? Again, the, verse, the, the word therefore is helpful to us once again. They shouldn't waver because of the word therefore. The word therefore tells us that it is that gospel, it's that gospel that the Holy Spirit used in accordance with the election of God to bring them to life in Christ. And so in this age of deception, when you inevitably hear something that contradicts the gospel, no, stand firm on that gospel because it's that gospel that brought you to life. Your present spiritual life is a testimony to the veracity of the Gospel. Are you alive in Christ? Then you can know that the Gospel is true. Stand firm on it. The second thing that He wants us to do with this Gospel is to hold fast to it. Hold fast to the Gospel. The idea is is that of clinging to it as an anchor. Cling to it as an anchor. When deception comes calls everything into question. We've already seen earlier in this chapter that, that, that the, the aim of every deception of, of the enemy is to, is to remove our hope from us, to undermine our hope so that we will turn away from worshiping the one true God. And When that happens, we must cling to the truth of the gospel, preach the gospel to ourselves, saying things like, no, I know that the gospel is true. I know that Jesus lives. And because He lives, His sacrifice was sufficient to pay for my sins. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I am in Christ Jesus. And I know that Jesus is coming back because the same Jesus who said He would rise again, which He did, He also said that He's coming back to take me to Himself, that where He is, I may be also. So I know that Jesus is coming back. We need to preach the Gospel to ourselves. We need to hold fast to it, cling to it in these days of deception. Enjoy security knowing that the Gospel is true, that you are truly saved, and allow the Gospel to correct all the false teaching coming to your way in an age of deception, whether that false teaching comes from the church or to the world. The Gospel is a tremendous safeguard against the lies of the devil. And so we, we, we must fill our hearts with it and, and allow our, our, our minds, our thinking to be framed by it. You know, we're, we're being, we, we are being confronted with different worldviews all the time. Every, every communication that we confront or that confronts us has a worldview behind it. So every movie that you watch, every song that you hear, every commercial, every news report, every book, every conversation, every casual conversation, every tweet, post, and podcast, they are all making truth claims. And we should challenge ourselves to evaluate all of them, asking what truth claims am I being confronted with And how do they either coincide with or contradict the gospel? And we should be doing this now. We should be doing it now for two reasons. First of all, deception is all around us now. But secondly, deception is only going to get worse. And if we train ourselves now, our powers of deception, our powers of discernment now, then we will be well trained when that great day of deception comes and will not fall prey. Let me give you an example of, of, of how we might apply the gospel to our thinking right now. We just had an election. 
and there are worldviews being pushed on us on both sides of the selection. Listen to how both sides are talking about what just happened. Both sides are pushing a worldview. Both sides are making truth claims. One side. Now we can heal. Now hate will not stand. Now there is hope. The other side. Our way of, our way of life is hopelessly damaged. We're doomed. Treachery has won. Listen, both of those voices are voices of deception. Both of them are. And to the extent that we believe them, we believe lies. To the extent that we echo them, we echo lies because they both teach that our hope is in man and not in Jesus Christ. Because one is saying, if this man is elected, we have hope. And the other is saying, if this man is not elected, we have no hope. Now we likely all have, and, and, and no, matter, no matter when the election is or what election we're talking about, we likely all have temporal human reasons for why we want to, want to see a particular outcome. And that's natural and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But our hope should not rise and fall with elections. And the gospel reminds us of that. The gospel corrects that lie coming at us. That lie that tells us elections determine whether or not we have hope. The gospel would say to us, yeah, the gospel would ask us questions and then answer those questions for us. What is man's greatest problem? Is it socialism? Is it racism? Is it poor health care? No! Man's greatest problem is that he is a sinner separated from God under the eternal wrath of God. Is, is any mere man, elected official or otherwise, able to do anything about that problem? The answer is no! No mere man can offer any hope regarding man's real eternal problem. But the good news is that we don't need a mere man to offer us hope because a God-man already did. Jesus Christ did something about our biggest problem. By His own life and death and resurrection, He provided for reconciliation to God for every repentant believer on the planet. And what did Jesus say to His, to his disciples just before His dissension, His ascension in Matthew 28? He said, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then what did he do? He then sat on a throne at the right hand of God. So we have national elections, but there is one throne and the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, he sits on it and no election can remove him from it. Rather, he delegates authority to whom He wills. And from His position at the right hand of the Father, He installs every earthly power. And wittingly or unwittingly, they do His ultimate bidding for whose eternal good? 
for the eternal good of His bride. And so with every presidential election, with every midterm, with, with the rise and fall of every nation, King Jesus brings His bride, the church, one step closer to eternity with Him. The gospel counteracts lies in this age of deception. The gospel is a safeguard against the deception that would rob you of your hope or give you a false hope in earthly things. It does that right now, and it will do that in the great deception of the final days. So we should train our powers of discernment right now. One more safeguard against deception. God's care, God's care and our empowerment by it. God's care and our empowerment by it. Verse 16. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. We, we could consider this divorced from the context. And if, and if we did that, we, we might say some true theological things, perhaps about God's empowering our, our obedience. Or we might say this is a great prayer and, and we should pray this for one another. And neither of those things would be wrong. But the best way to understand this text is in its context and to see that Paul is writing this as a follow-up to give comfort to those who have been warned regarding the danger of deception. And so the intent here is to do just that, to give us comfort that we will be safe in the age of deception because of what God will do as a result of the prayers of His saints. We need God to work. We need Him to help us in the age of deception. And the prayer here is that God would do two things. And those two things are actually found in, in verse 17. So we're going to start in 17 and then come back to 16. So the first thing that, that we pray that God would do is that He would comfort our hearts. That He would comfort our hearts. The age of deception is, a, is an age of turmoil. Paul has painted a very difficult picture earlier in the chapter. And all of us are aware that Life is difficult now. Paul's told us it's only going to get worse as the man of lawlessness brings great trouble upon the professing church in order to, to force the nominal believer to turn away from Christ and engage in false worship. There's going to be great suffering. And during suffering, what is it that we want? During your suffering now, what is it that you want? I, I don't know about you, but when, when my heart is in turmoil, I turn to the Psalms very quickly. I mean, I make a beeline for the middle of my Bible. And, and I do that because I find one thing there. I find comfort. I find Psalms reminding me of, of the character of God and His intention to show me kindness. And I find Christological scenes there that remind me that Jesus has gone before me and that, that He has made it a certainty that I can and will endure. I go to the Psalms because there I find comfort. That's what we want in trouble. So, naturally, Paul prays that for us. He prays, hey, may, may the Lord comfort you in those times. May He reassure you that you belong to Him, that, that He will see you through, that He is who He says He is. And so, we should pray that for ourselves. 
we should pray that for one another. We should pray that now. We should pray that as, as we approach the last day, that God would do just that. Paul prays for something else. He prays, secondly, that God will establish us in every good work and word. That God would establish us in every good work and word. Now, that may, may not be the most obvious thing to pray for people approaching difficulty in an age of deception, but it is a very wise and strategic prayer, and I'd like to explain why that's the case. It's a prayer for the Lord to establish us in holiness. It's a prayer for God to grant us to walk in a manner consistent with the gospel that we profess, and that is helpful because practical holiness is the evidence of true saving faith. It shows that, that, that God is granting us proof that we belong to Him. And, th- and that's the, the whole issue at hand, is it not? In this age of deception, there are many who profess Christ. And the, age of the, en- the, the aim of the enemy is to expose the nominal believer. That, that's what he's trying to do. Bring pressure upon the church so that the nominal believer will say, Okay, I give up. I don't really follow Jesus and knowing that, the true believer may wonder, and it sounds very much like, like the faithful disciples at the Last Supper, Lord, is it I? Am I one of the ones who will fall away? Have I, have I truly believed? What a wonderful gift then for the Lord to work in us and cause us to bear godly fruit in the form of good works and good words in these worst of circumstances giving us assurance that, that, yes, you do belong to me. Look at what your genuine faith has wrought in you through my power. You are truly a believer. So when we, when we see that, we can, we can be comforted that we belong to him. We will not fall prey to the enemy in his lies. God is establishing us by his power to live the Christian life in the midst of that historic, apocalyptic turmoil His power will do this. And that's what Paul's praying for us. And so, that's what we should pray for ourselves. That's what we should pray for one another. Now, that's verse 17. What confidence should we have that God will answer that prayer? Well, That that question is answered by verse 16. Verse 16 tells us why we we should have confidence that God will answer that prayer. Verse 16 tells us we should have that confidence because, because God has already shown us kindness in the past. Look at how Paul describes the Lord. He is the one who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Those are past tense verbs. The Lord has already done this. The Lord already loved us. Now what is that worth? What is it worth that the Lord has already loved us? Well, the love of God is something that you can take to the spiritual bank. R- write this down if you're taking notes. Romans 8, 38, 39. Romans 8, 38 and 39, which reads, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, listen to this, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God given to us in the past, 
That is spiritual currency that you can take to the bank. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. He loved us and He gave us, past tense, eternal comfort. Now think about what that means. He gave us eternal comfort. He gave us in the past comfort that is eternal. And so when Paul then prays that he would, that he would comfort us, this simply means that he's praying that God would continue to give us what He has already given us and is giving us. And He gave us good hope and grace. He gave us, gave us hope. Now hope is by nature forward-looking. Hope is the confident expectation that we will receive something in the future. He gave us that. He gave us the confident expectation that we will receive something in the future. Now, what, what is the content of that hope? I'm, I'm not aware of any hope in the Scriptures other than receiving the glory of Christ in the last days. He gave us that in the past. And so we will receive that in the future. So listen, all of this, verses 13 through 16, God's decision from eternity past to choose us, His love that He has already given us, the gift of comfort that He's already given us, the hope that He's already given us, all of them give us comfort that in the future He will love us, that in the future we do have hope, that in the future He is going to establish us in good works and good words. He will keep us in the faith in the utmost difficulty of those future days. He will do those things because of the kindness He has already shown us in the past. By His power, He is safeguarding us. And yet, because this is a prayer, we should pray this. Because God uses the means of prayer to accomplish His plan. We should believe that. We should believe that and we should pray this prayer for ourselves and one another. I pray every day of my life, Lord, keep me in the faith. Please keep me in the faith. I pray that for the elders. I pray that for others. Keep us in the faith. Please keep the elders exemplifying the qualifications of an elder. Now, do I have any doubts that these brothers are going to do that? Do I have any doubts that I'm, that I'm going to continue in the faith? Not at all. I just believe that God uses the means of prayer to accomplish His will, and so I pray these things. And, and Paul has every confidence. We know that because of what he has said here, he has every confidence that God is going to continue to give hope. He's going to continue to establish them in good works and good words, but he prays it. Why does he do that? Because he knows that prayer is the means that God uses, among the means that God uses to accomplish His will. And so we must pray this kind of prayer believing with great confidence that He will answer those prayers. Safeguards, safeguards, divine safeguards. We need them desperately. We, we, we live in a world of terrible turmoil, if you hadn't noticed. And as Paul has revealed here in this second chapter, it's only going to get worse. The question is, do our hearts necessarily need to be places of turmoil? Is it impossible for our hearts to be places of tranquility and joy? 
No, it is not impossible for our hearts to be places of tranquility and joy, even though all the world around us is a place of turmoil. Why is that? Because God has given us divine safeguards against this age of deception, divine safeguards that tell us in unison, you will remain in the faith and you will see Jesus on the last day. So when we doubt, we must call our minds to these divine safeguards, understanding His election and our security in it, cherishing His truth and the importance of our holding fast to it, and resting in His care and our empowerment by it. And therefore, believe, trusting that we will enjoy eternity with the Lord Jesus, no matter what the enemy throws at us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your powerful and true word. What a great balm it is for our soul. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who ministers it to us and has helped us to understand it. We pray that he would continue to work in us through it to help us continue to believe it and apply it. We, we ask, Lord, that we would continue to believe these things in these difficult days with, with so many uncertainties in the world around us and in our nation, that, that the gospel would inform our thinking, correct our thinking as, as we're confronted with aberrant worldviews and, and lies. Please train our powers of discernment against deception by, by helping us to think gospel thoughts on a daily basis. We pray, Father, that you would prepare us for that great day of deception by moving us to avail ourselves of these divine safeguards. We thank you for them, Lord, and we thank you for the fact that we will see Jesus on the last day. Father, for those among us who who may not know the Lord Jesus, who have not repented of their sin and trusted in Him, we pray that You would grant them this kindness, that You would give them an awareness of their guilt before You, help them to feel their sin debt bearing down upon their own shoulders, help them to feel their hopelessness, Help them to feel the, 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 the eternal penalty of their sin bearing down on them. Grant them to see the hopelessness of remaining outside of Christ. And Father, will you, will you then move them to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus that they might be saved, that they might be granted these divine safeguards against deception in the future and spend eternity with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.